Coming up on Tech Nation, I speak with University of Wisconsin math professor Jordan Ellenberg, whom you might know from his earlier book, How Not to Be Wrong. He's here today with Shape, the Hidden Geometry of Information, Biology, Strategy, Democracy, and Everything Else. Then a different approach for an antidepressant, Marcio Sousa, the president and CEO of Praxis Precision Machines, tells us about their research drug, Modulating GABA, a key neurotransmitter in the brain, and its potential to treat other conditions, such as essential tremor. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In Tufts University professor Daniel Dennett's 2013 book, Intuition Pumps and Other Tools for Thinking, he writes, When physicist Richard Feynman found himself listening to a scientific talk in a field he didn't know well, he had a favorite question to ask the speaker. Can you give me a really simple example of what you're talking about? If the speaker couldn't oblige, Feynman got suspicious. Yeah, I think that's a, a wonderful tactic. I've used it myself. I find that some people are really opposed to using examples, and I think if you use examples, it helps everybody. He was, of course, a master of making up simple examples. As he went along, he could often figure out very complicated things that he didn't even quite understand by just making a simpler example. Let's talk about what is in this book. I mean, uh, and, and I'll just back up a, se a second. We all think, or at least we think we think, and we use different methods for thinking. And sometimes we'll say to some, about someone, they're not very analytical, or they can't seem to be able to think about this. Let's introduce the idea of thinking tools. Yeah. Uh, a student of mine once said uh, one of my favorite quotes, you can't do much carpentry with your bare hands and you can't do much thinking with your bare brain. Uh, and that's just true. It's, uh, um, first of all, you definitely need the most important thinking tools of all, which are words. Uh, the main reason we're so much smarter than dolphins and chimpanzees and elephants and everybody else in the animal world is that we can talk it over. We can trade notes. We can challenge each other and ask why and ask for explanations. That's the hammer and screwdriver and saw, right? There's our, our words themselves, which have many roles to play. But then once you've got words, you can build those words into little persuasion devices or sometimes great big, huge persuasion devices. And sometimes these are theories or methods, cost-benefit analysis, things like that. Sometimes they're just sort of like Aesop's fables. They're little stories that are designed by you, if you make them, to get your audience to say, oh, yeah, I get it. Yeah, right. To draw a conclusion. But conclusion, not necessarily in the logical sense of an airtight demonstration, but just a hunch that you get behind and say, got it. Yeah, right. Thank you. So that's an intuition pump. And I coined that term, oh, more than 30 years ago to talk about a defective intuition pump. Uh, but I think they're wonderful when they're done right. And they are the tool of choice in philosophy for several millennia. And the best of them 
are unforgettable and legendary. Descartes' evil demon that tries to fool him into thinking that the world exists when it doesn't. A Plato's cave. Hobbes in the state of nature, where life is nasty, prudish, and short. But that philosophers and others are coming up with intuition pumps all the time. And I wanted people to become a little bit self-conscious about these as devices by reverse engineering them, by turning all the knobs to see what makes them work. Oddly enough, we philosophers who are supposed to be such uh, self-absorbed, reflective navel-gazers, it's amazing how unselfconscious most philosophers are about the methods they use and whether they're good methods and how and when you can rely on them. So by drawing attention to the fact that these tales we tell are artifacts, they're designed to do a job, then we can reverse engineer and we can say, well, what actually provides the power in this particular case? And is that, is that what we want? This 2013 Tech Nation interview features Daniel Dennett and his book, Intuition Pumps and Other Tools for Thinking. Today, he continues to be the Angus B. Fletcher Professor of Philosophy and Director of the Center for Cognitive Studies at Tufts University. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with Jordan Ellenberg, the John D. MacArthur Professor of Mathematics at the University of Wisconsin. He'll talk about his book, Shape, the Hidden Geometry of Information, Biology, Strategy, Democracy, and Everything Else. And in biotech, Marcio Sousa, the President and CEO of Praxis Precision Medicines, tells us about their unusual approach to developing an antidepressant, one which may also prove to be effective for other medical conditions, such as essential tremor. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the web at mindk.com. And now, Jordan Ellenberg. Well, Jordan, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you for having me on. Now, any number of people confess to me they don't like math, and it seems like the speed bump is somewhere in high school. It's like, I stopped at algebra. Don't say geometry. I won't touch it. Or the popular, who in their right mind would voluntarily do calculus? Now, you may be a math professor now, but you were a big fan of one of those growing up. Yeah, exactly. So I started... I was somebody who always liked math growing up. But the one course that didn't really vibe with me was geometry, you know, plain geometry, you probably remember triangles, angles, circles, stuff like that. And then, you know, as an adult, I mean, I do mathematics for a living. And somehow more and more geometry has crept into my work almost uh, against my expectation, maybe even almost against my will. Well, it's against the will of all those people who think they're avoiding geometry. 
You say even babies comprehend geometry. How so? It's true. So yeah, geometry, there's no question that if you really boil it down, geometry is the understanding of you know, where things are and what they look like, what shape they are. That's why I called the book Shape. And of course, we're built to do that. You know, as, as human beings throughout our entire existence as a species, we've had to be able to reckon how far away things are, what they're shaped like, what the back of something looks like if we can only see the front, uh, things like that. So babies, for instance, you know, you can hold up cards to them that have two copies of the same shape. And then every once in a while, you hold up two cards where the shape is reversed on one of them. And the babies will notice that, you know, there's all kinds of ways. It's a whole interesting subject of like how we tell what babies are paying attention to. You can measure how fast they blink or you can watch their eyes. Um, you can see that babies are keyed to notice variations in shape. You call geometry the cilantro of math. What could that possibly mean? <laughs> well, you know, I use that because cilantro is one of those things. I do not like cilantro, actually, but it's one of those things that People taste it really differently, and some people love it, and some people hate it, but very few people are neutral about it. And I see geometry as like that. So you sort of started this by saying like, oh, people get like thrown off of the math curriculum by geometry, but not everybody. I mean, what I find by talking to people about math and their high school math experiences, and sometimes they talk to me, you know, when you're a mathematician, people often have issues that they want to unload on you, so I like to hear about it. Um, there are definitely people who are like, everything made sense to me except geometry. What was going on there? I'm like, why do we talk about all those circles and triangles and stuff? But there's other people who were like, nothing made sense to me except geometry. That was the one moment where I felt like we were actually doing something. And then the rest of it was like, why is X over here? And then it was over there or whatever. You know what I mean? So for everybody, I think they recognize that there's something different about it. It's not really like anything else you learn in high school math. I would say it's actually not like anything else you learn in high school. And I think the reason for that is that you know, in geometry, this notion of constructing a proof of a theorem, it's one of the only places in high school where you can truly create knowledge on your own. And you're not dependent on anybody else to tell you what was true or what was false or what happened. Um, you know what I mean? Like you're not having somebody else tell you, okay, what's the meaning of this character in this book? Or what happened in this point in history among people who are now dead and you can't ask themselves or witness, right? In geometry, you can really just start from the basic axioms and you don't have to rely on anybody else's authority to create knowledge. And that's a very special moment. And it's something that really, in some sense, is not offered uh, anywhere else to our students. So many times people think of geometry as orientation, reorientation, moving things around. You actually confess that you're, you're not quite as good as most of the babies. <laughs> you have a trouble, you know, with you go up to the gas pump, you know, and it says it's showing you how to put your credit card in. And you're like, oh, I don't know what they're talking about. So you try every all four ways. <laughs> yes, I can. I mean, I know that that picture is there because you're supposed to be able to look at it and be like, oh, that's telling me which way I'm supposed to turn the card before you put it in. But I simply cannot do it. You know, it's the same. My wife constantly makes fun of me about this. If I'm inside the house, I have no idea like what's outside a certain wall. I can't tell what direction that is. Or I can't tell if I'm on the first floor. I can't tell what room's like right above me. And I understand that people, in principle, there's a way to like, if you know your own house and how it's laid out to figure that out. But that's a capacity that I'm very lacking in this kind of spatial visualization. And yet I do geometry for a living. So go figure. How did you possibly end up being a math professor? I mean, after all, there's a lot. It's not like, well, I can't do anything else. I'm out to be a math professor. How did you decide to be that? 
Well, I think I was always uh, very interested in math from when I was young. And, you know, one thing about it, and, you know, in some sense, I hope that shows in the book, is that these ideas of geometry, you know, when we teach them in high school, we teach that, well, it's about proving facts about triangles and circles and angles. But geometry has never been only that. If it ever was, it's certainly not now. It probably never was just that. Geometry is everywhere. And so, you know, what I try to get out in the book is that all these things of great import, you know, the, all the kind of developments that we're seeing in artificial intelligence. Um, I write a lot about this kind of like very complicated problem of drawing congressional districts, which is about to be quite hot here in the United States as the new census comes out. And we talk about that problem. I write a lot about the spread of pandemics, which is not something I thought I was going to write about when I first uh, pitched this book uh, two years ago. And I, like a lot of people, suddenly found myself very interested in this subject uh, around last March. Um, all those things are fundamentally geometric in nature. They have to do with things moving through space in one way or another. Sometimes like a very abstract space, uh, not a space like a blackboard or a piece of paper, but a space like you know, the space of all possible strategies for solving a computational problem. You want to explore that space if you're like an AI, right, to sort of figure out what's the best strategy for getting a task done. I mean, it was like everybody else, like I'm very interested in these new developments. So I go to a lot of seminars, I go to a lot of lectures, hear the folks talk about how they're building these things. And when you really get down into the guts of what they're doing, it's extremely geometric in nature. And so one of the things I wanted to do writing about that was just kind of demystify that in some sense, Yes, building these things requires a lot of technical work, but the fundamental mathematical idea of how they work is not actually that complicated. And so I wanted to sort of take some time to write about it and sort of talk to people so they didn't feel like it was magic. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Jordan Ellenberg. He's the John D. MacArthur Professor of Mathematics at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. You may know him for his Do the Math column in Slate, were numerous contributions to the New York Times and the Washington Post, among others. Or you may be familiar with his earlier book, How Not to Be Wrong, or his even earlier book, a novel called The Grasshopper King. He's here today with Shape, the Hidden Geometry of Information, Biology, Strategy, Democracy, and Everything Else. Well, you didn't figure I'd dig up that old novel, The Grasshopper King. I was pleased. You can't, you know, we're on the radio, so you can't hear me beaming, but people don't mention him that much. <laughs> Tell us about that. What is that? Well, you know, when I was a younger person, I was not really sure what I wanted to do with my life. And so after college, I went off to uh, be a writer for a year. I went to do a degree in creative writing, and I hung out with writers and wrote this novel. And, you know, to be honest, like, I missed math every day. So I liked doing that. But I, I, I missed doing math. And in some sense, you know, one thing I learned is that it's good actually to sort of take some time away from the main thing you're doing. Because then when the main thing you're doing becomes difficult and, you know, math is pretty hard, like a lot of the time, you could say, OK, today I'm having a crappy math day. But I know that when I wasn't doing math, I like that much less. That kind of gives you the strength to persevere. So that's I tell I tell all my students, actually, like some people are worried, like, oh, math, if I take a day away, I'm going to forget how to do math, let alone if I take a month away or a year away. I'm like, nope, math has been here for thousands of years. It's still going to be here a year from now if you go away and come back, but you'll know yourself much better. You know, even though I'm going to be honest with you, hardly anybody read that novel. If anybody listening to this knows my name, it's not from that. I promise I'm going to go read it. 
I have to read it now after reading this book. You know, it's like, <laughs> what were you like 20 years ago? And you were just writing a novel. I mean, it was incredible. So uh, uh, I, I promise I'm going to do it. And, awesome. And uh, I'll even send you a book report since you're a professor, professor to professor. <laughs> it's required. It's required. <laughs> it's required. It's required. We all know about Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. But what we didn't know is that Lincoln credited his speech writing to mathematics? Yeah, it's amazing, right? And this is one of those things that, you know, when you're writing a book like this, you just come across all kinds of things. I always think I'm going to write about stuff I know about. But it turns out I never actually do that in practice because writing about what you already know about is very boring. Learning is interesting. So I sort of, st I sort of got a hint of this thing about Lincoln and like went down this rabbit hole of like Lincoln's love for math. I mean, who knew, right? I mean, I'm a mathematician. Um, I work in a university as a giant statue of Abraham Lincoln, like right in front of the main hall, right? I mean, and, but I did not know about this. So yeah, absolutely. So Lincoln, um, this, it starts when he's, before he's president, by far, he's kind of a, he'd been in the Congress, he'd been voted out of Congress. His political career was kind of in the dumps. He was like, just going around Illinois, being a lawyer. And he said, you know what, like, People are always talking about what we're going to demonstrate and what we're going to prove in the court. What do they actually mean by that? He said, I realized I have no idea like what that means. And so he went back to Euclid, you know, this famous book of geometry, Euclid's Elements, which sort of laid out the modern notion of proof uh, for the first time back at about 300 BC. And Lincoln said, I went home and I read the six books of Euclid until I could prove everything in them. And like now I understand what it means to actually prove something. Um, and he remained an enthusiast for the rest of his life. You know, there's this famous, well, I guess it's not a famous story. Maybe I'm trying to make it famous. <laughs> where, um, you know, one of his law partners comes across him and he's just in a state of complete disarray. He's like at his desk and there's like papers everywhere, all kinds of stuff, all these different colors of pens and inks and like clearly nothing to do with law. Like what's going on? Lincoln's like, I'm trying to square the circle. It's a famous ancient Greek geometry problem. Can you construct a square that has the same area as a given circle. Now, why would you want to do that? That's a longer story. We're not going to tell it here. Let's just say, <laughs> let's just say it's a famously hard problem that is actually we now know impossible, cannot be done. And I think even at Lincoln's time, you know, you have a pretty good bet it's impossible. People tried for a thousand years to do it and couldn't do it. But yeah, you know, Lincoln was like, I'm going to give it a try. So he worked for two days and gave up. And his, his partner is very funny. His partner is like. I could tell he was sensitive about it, so we never brought it up again. <laughs> I just wanted to tell this story in my memoirs. Well, actually, that's a good thing. You know, I always think about what could we ask presidential candidates, you know, and it's like, hey, what do you think of math? I have no idea whether any of our modern politicians are math enthusiasts. It's an interesting question. You'd think I would know, but I, I, I do you know? Well, no, I don't. But I'll tell you what I do know. I do know that being the president is a really tough job. One of the things you have to be able to do is to analyze complex situations and also analyze the information that's given to you, both on its face for what they're trying to show you, because almost always it's an argument is to be made, and also what's underneath it. So it seems to me if you're not very good at math, well, it's not going to be a very good result. Yeah, and I think, you know, one thing I've learned just from you know, thinking about the issues of the day through a mathematical lens, because, you know, partly from writing books, partly from like writing articles in newspapers, partly just from like, you know, living in the world and like talking to people and seeing things the way I see them, is that on the one hand, there's very few interesting problems in the world that are just math problems that you can do with math alone. On the other hand, 
There's also very few interesting problems in the world that don't have any math in them. You know, most things, there's a mathematical, quantitative, geometric aspect, and also a very non-mathematical aspect. And those things are wound up together. And if you try to do it just one way or just the other, something's going to go wrong with your reasoning. I do actually think that. Well, we do know that every, uh, every president went to school <laughs> thus far, and we think they will in the future. And certainly every president had to go through and take math. And the University of Wisconsin Library, I guess, found a huge trove of math textbooks from the Wisconsin school system, like from the last hundred years. What did we learn from that? Yeah, it was fascinating because, you know, as a teacher and as a parent, for that matter, you know, I have a fifth grader and a ninth grader. You know, there's so many arguments about how we should teach math. You've probably heard those arguments, too. You know, should we you know, should we teach the principles and let the students work out examples? Or should we like teach examples and let the student work out principles? Should we focus on, you know, fluency and memorization and how fast can kids do their memorization multiplication tables? Or should we focus on sort of bigger concepts and having the students understand why an algorithm works or something like this? Lots and lots and lots of arguments. And what you find reading these old textbooks from, I don't know, like 1950, 1930, 1890, is that everything we think is a contemporary argument that we've just decided to have, those same arguments were being had 50 years ago, 70 years ago. I mean, it's crazy because, like, you know, one thing I came across while researching this book is a book called Inventional Geometry, a really cool textbook where the entire theme is the textbook just has, is just a series of problems. There's literally no text except for a series of 400 problems. And they're like, our philosophy is, you know, the student's should like work stuff out on their own. They should, shouldn't be told stuff by the authority figure. They should kind of, uh, you know, step by step develop their own understanding of geometry. And if you see this, I think in a modern context, you're like, oh, this is exactly this kind of like wishy-washy, like student-centered, like maybe there's no right or wrong, blah, 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 blah. Okay, this book is from 1860. <laughs> yeah. Since then, 1860. So we're still having the same arguments. And the truth is, honestly, where I feel like there's not really a right or wrong about this stuff. I mean, as a te I've, you know, te I'm teaching 20 years. At some point, you start to feel like there's no single way that's the right way to teach math. Different students are different from each other. And I think at best, what we can do is kind of try to be something for everybody. You know, all the different ideas we have about how to teach, kind of mix them up a little bit in the classroom so that I think if every student has at least some of the time feels like, Oh, at last the teacher's on my wavelength. I don't know what they were doing last week. That was a mess. But I got something now. <laughs> but I got something now. I think that's, you know, that's something for them to hang on to. And whereas I think if you kind of pick one approach and are like, this is the right approach, there's going to be students who the entire year are like, well, that was a waste of my time. I don't think you want that. No, we don't want that ever. <laughs> now, you mentioned gerrymandering earlier. Remind us what gerrymandering is, where the term came from, and uh, how it's related to geometry. Yeah, it's something you're going to hear a lot about over the next few months because we've just had a census. The census figures have just been released. And what that means is that states have to redraw the boundaries of their legislative districts. Boy, does that sound boring, right? That, is, that sounds like the political story you're least likely to read about, you're going to flip the page in the New York Times when you come to that. But it's incredibly important and it's actually like pretty interesting. And I try to make that case uh, in the book because it turns out that where you draw those boundaries between legislative districts has a huge effect on who gets elected to the legislature. 
So it has a huge political effect. Effectively, what's happening is that legislators, because by the way, it's, it's the existing legislators who draw the boundaries. What? There's a real feedback loop there. <laughs> right? That's whose job it is in most states, certainly here in Wisconsin, which is what I know best. Um, so, you know, those legislators are choosing their voters rather than the voters choosing their legislators. It's a very strange system. And so, okay, there's the politics. Where's the geometry? Um, well, this word gerrymander, it's pretty old. It comes from Elbridge Gerry, who was the governor of Massachusetts in the early 19th century. So this was not a problem that was invented yesterday by any means. And these kind of crazy districts he drew in, in Massachusetts, one of which was sort of so kind of sinuous and complicated and weird that it was said to look like a kind of salamander, like drawn across the state of Massachusetts. So the gerrymander, right? The salamander, the salamander of Jerry. Because of that, I think, this is one of the misconceptions I want to write about in the book. People often think, oh, gerrymandering means that you draw these really weird, artificial looking districts that help your party by sort of bringing together far flung communities that have nothing to do with each other, blah, blah, blah. That unfortunately is an outdated view. And it leads people to think that if they look at the map and it doesn't look funny, it's fine. Yeah, no, that's not how it is. So nowadays, because we have so much more computational ability than we used to, it's very easy to draw a map that looks to the naked eye completely fine. You know, all the districts are these like innocent little kind of rectangular regions, um, but is in fact designed to impart this huge advantage to the party that's drawing it. And the story I tell in the book is, you know, both the kind of crazy political historical story of how this all played out in Wisconsin. And there's lots of sort of crazy daring do and like locked door meetings and you know, political skullduggery, um, you know, but also the story of the, of the mathematics, which is both, it's kind of a, it's kind of a political war and math is fighting on both sides because you're doing sort of intense computation and geometry. The people who are doing the gerrymander to try to find the map that best advantages them. And also the people who are trying to do the reforms, who are trying to be the detectives and show just how gerrymandered the map is. So it's like math versus math. <laughs> I love that. I love it. It's like, finally, you go, wait a minute. You really want, if you want to win, you don't want a, a district that's 100% your party. You want one that's like 60% your party. So you take out those 40% votes, and you'll continue to win. But you can use the other 40% that would have been your party and shove them in another district and win some more. <laughs> so. Exactly. Exactly. You want the exactly a hundred percent districts that are a hundred percent your party is exactly the opposite of what you want because then all those voters who are voting for you they're essentially wasted, right? They're all in that district. You're already going to win. So what you try to do is you try to make districts that are a hundred percent the other party. You know, one reason to educate folks about this is that when people know about it, they don't like it, and in just about every chance when voters have been given an opportunity by referendum to swap out that system where the legislators draw their own boundaries for a different system, uh, voters have gone for that choice in overwhelming numbers. You saw it happen in Michigan, and Michigan is going to have an independent commission draw its boundaries this year, um, and in several other states as well. In Wisconsin, unfortunately, we don't have a refer referendum system like that, so there's no, uh, there is no way around the legislature. But I think, um, but I think it's something that public opinion I don't, I don't think it can really survive in the bright light of day. I think it's something that people just look at it and instinctively know it's dirty. I've been speaking with University of Wisconsin professor Jordan Ellenberg, the author of Shape, The Hidden Geometry of Information, Biology, Strategy, Democracy, 
and everything else. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available at NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcasts, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, Marcio Sousa, the president and CEO of Praxis Precision Medicines, tells us about their approach to a new antidepressant now in clinical trials. Stay with us. Tech Nation. I've been speaking with University of Wisconsin mathematics professor Jordan Ellenberg. His book is Shape, The Hidden Geometry of Information, Biology, Strategy, Democracy, and Everything Else. While many people got stuck in high school in math and others, you know, just loved it. That's where they almost discovered math. I had totally forgotten about the math team circuit. Now explain what that is and explain who the Hell's Angles are. Well, the Hell's Angles were my high school math themes. Well, I have to shout out to Winston Churchill High School in Potomac, Maryland. Still there, going strong in case any Potomacers are listening to this. Um, and, you know, it's, yeah, maybe it's not so well known that parallel to the whole world of high school athletics, there's a world of dare I say it, high school mathletics. Yes, it is sometimes called that. Um, you know, in which students who are excited about math have like a wide range of contests to compete in. You know, you have sort of some like um, short list of problems. You have a certain amount of time to do them. High schools compete against other high schools. Counties compete against other counties. States compete against other states. In my school, I have to admit, you actually got a varsity letter for being on the math team. I certainly never dared wear that thing on my jacket to school. God knows what would have happened to me if I'd tried it, but you did get one. It's a funny thing because, you know, that those kinds of contests, in some sense, it's not the same as like the kind of deep mathematical ideas the researchers work on. How could it be? It's like a problem that you're going to do in a in eight minutes. By the way, since you brought it up, you want to know something funny? I will tell you, I just can't resist. They even have relays. Did you know that? There's a relay in math team 
I'm going to tell you about it. How, do you, how does that work? So instead of a baton, there's five kids sitting front to back, so each behind the other. Um, each kid gets a different problem, but except for the first kid, each problem has a number in it that says T-N-Y-W-R, the number you will receive. Boy, I haven't thought about this in years, and now I'm just like smiling, thinking about it. So everybody's going to wait till the first kid does their problem, and then as soon as they're finished, they pass the, their answer back to the second kid, and that's the number that they need in order to do their problem, get an answer, write it on a sheet of paper, pass it back to the third kid until, you know, the fifth kid, the anchor, has to turn in the final answer. If the first one messes up, all the rest are wrong. Exactly. Which is just like a real relay, right? If anybody drops the baton, forget about it. Well, I have to make a confession. I mean, this is why it shocked me. I literally had forgotten about this for decades. But they also have pairs. They have teams of pairs. And I went to Holy Cross High School for Girls in Mountain View. And I have to tell you, you know, there wasn't a lot of math going on. There were just a few of us. But Mrs. Halteman, our teacher, decided we were going to go to one of these math circuits. And the big one was down at San Jose State. And, I mean, there were, there had to be 1,500 kids there. Wow. Palo Alto High School, which is right next to Stanford, it sent like 250 kids. I mean, this was an unbelievable place. So here the, so you were the underdogs. The five of us walk in and, you know, we, we frankly, we were sophomores. I mean, we, we didn't know any math. You know, we were just, we were kind of new math and we were just uh, somehow we, they, she had convinced the, the five of us to go. And I remember, and she had signed us up. And so we were each in the morning, the morning you signed up for a bunch of stuff and then in the afternoon for the bunch of stuff. So in the morning we were, we were each in different ones, but in the afternoon she said, to Mary Schwen and me, you two are going in the team competition over here, the pairs. We're like, sure. Why not? <laughs> we, we're like, we are so over our heads. So we go in there and we're, you know, and you swap papers and you do all this and we handed it in and we didn't think anything of it. And like, oh, that was, that was like, we didn't, we could barely read some of these problems. And so, uh, so, but Mrs. Haldeman said, then we are going to stay for the awards presentation. And of course, the there were so many people there. They gave the top 10 awards for everything. And then one of the last ones was the team's award. And, and, and so number 10, they announced our names. We were like, we couldn't believe it. And we went up there and they only gave us one certificate. They were kind of cheap about that. So, you know, we held it between us, got our picture taken. And we're like, how does this happen? How does this happen? And we looked at each other and realized, there were only 10 teams. <laughs> there, was, there was some other thing everybody else wanted. So we went back to school. They announced our names over the loudspeaker. People were congratulating us. Everybody was so happy. And we were like, say nothing. <laughs> From then on in, oh, we're not going to another math team circuit. No, no, we've beaten it. We've already gotten our award. <laughs> it wouldn't be fair to the others. <laughs> so I had not thought of that in years. So, you know, there are so many stories out of that, including, and you got to, come on, you got to confess, you know, you, you even, you guys even walked around with a boom box and Huey Lewis singing, it's hip to be square. It's true. We had swagger. You had to have swagger in those days. You had to have swagger. That's all you could have. Math swagger. In the math theme. But, you know, it's one thing that's interesting about it is that on the one hand, I think what, what I don't love about it is that, you know, in real life, math is not competitive. You know, in real life, math is this kind of communal enterprise that if you think about it, 
you know, it's been, like I said, it's been going on for thousands of years and each of us kind of adds a little brick to the wall. And, um, you know, we're all kind of working together to push it forward. It's not really about like who's best or, you know, did I beat this other person by finishing 30 seconds before them or something like that, which is like what a contest is like. On the other hand, I think the good side of the contest is the math team circuit, if you will, is that it does show you that math is not just something you kind of trudge through in the classroom to get a grade. You know what I mean? That there's this whole world of people for whom math is a form of play. And that very, that, that really is true to the spirit. And, you know, honestly, I try to, I try to invoke that in the book, because for me, any day I'm thinking about math is a fun day. If I didn't think it was fun to do, and I didn't think it was fun to talk about, you know, why would I write about it? I mean, I want it to be fun for the people who read about it too. Well, there is so much in this book and, uh, I mean, by page two, you're on ayahuasca. There's like, there's, <laughs> yes. there's something for everybody in this book. <laughs> I have to say, surprisingly so. <laughs> Very much. Now, it's all, only from my reading, by the way. That is not a personally oh, reported anecdote. Right. I'm just, but I have read that when people take ayahuasca, they see these kind of immense geometric patterns, the whole world. I'm told. Well, you, well you're always welcome here, Jordan. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. This was fun. My guest today is University of Wisconsin professor Jordan Ellenberg. His book is Shape, The Hidden Geometry of Information, Biology, Strategy, Democracy, and Everything Else. It's published by Penguin Random House. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. While many are familiar with how the current antidepressants available work, there's a different scientific approach now being pursued. It relates to GABA, a key neurotransmitter in the brain. Marcio Sousa is the president and CEO of Praxis Precision Medicines. Today we'll talk about Prax114, their research drug now in clinical trials for depression, as well as its potential in other disease conditions. Well, Marcio, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Now, depression is a significant health challenge, not just here in the United States, but worldwide. And I know that Praxis is working on a very different approach from others that I've seen, at least. What's the challenge of treating depression? And why is there a need for a different approach? Yeah, depression, as you just said, right, is, is a problem globally. It's something that we all heard about, we suffered about, uh, we suffered with. Uh, our family members, loved ones suffered. And it's been growing quite a bit, uh, both here in the U.S. and, and outside uh, of the U.S. as well. A little bit because of COVID, and I'm sure we can talk a little bit about this later, uh, but just in general uh, in society. And, and what are the problems with the current treatments, right? First, let me recognize that they're very useful. They're available right now. Uh, patients are getting relief uh, by using them both on the therapy itself, which is incredibly useful, and the pharmacologists, the medicines uh, for all those patients. But the biggest issue is that it takes a very long time uh, to act. So you start taking uh, several weeks later, you start to see the effects. And sometimes the uh, person uh, dealing with dep depression is going to ask, is this working for me or not working for me? Is that my brain? 
is that what's going on or not, just because it takes uh, very long. Uh, the response rates or the number of individuals or patients with depression that actually see a relief or experience a relief from those treatments is very, very small in terms of percents, uh, uh, which adds to the suffering, adds to, uh, to the issues we were talking about. And not the least of the problems, the side effects, right? As we know, drugs have effects that we expect them to do. They have side effects, what we're not expecting to do, but sometimes it happens. Uh, they're fairly debilitating uh, for these patients who chief amongst them are uh, weights, variability. There's already presence uh, in depression because of the appetites chains, sexual dysfunctions, very prevalent as well uh, with this treatment. So when you pack it all together, it's very difficult to live with depression and take these medicines and, and continue to plow through life as, as we all want to do and succeed. Well, even if medicine doesn't work for everybody, it would be good to find out fast that it didn't work. Right. You know, how long does it take to be taking an antidepressant before you really, you know that you're getting relief from it or you don't? To start acting, some of the current treatments, or the majority of the current treatments, takes between six and eight weeks. So imagine taking a drug every single day, expecting to feel better, not feeling better, with a condition that is already like relating in terms of how you function, uh, how you feel about life, uh, and then to some extent blaming yourself for not getting better. And it's actually the mechanism that the drug works uh, that is not allowing for that. Eventually it does work, for, for a large proportion of the patients, 30, 40, 50%, depending on how many cycles of the drug, uh, but it takes this long on each one of those cycles. So it uh, uh, adds to, uh, to the problem and to the stigma sometimes associated with depression. Now let's talk about what you're working on, GABA, G-A-B-A, that's all capital letters. And I mean, I just want to frame it, it that we're doing so much in neuroscience now. I mean, every we're constantly doing it on this show and talking to people and reading about it. Um, where does this come from? What's the science that 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 led here? Yeah. So the the brain, right? Neuroscience is is almost the ultimate frontier. Uh, and one of the main reasons is we have all these ideas, we have all these tests, but we really can't get inside someone's brain. Uh, so when you when you look into like cancer, right? We're seeing a revolution in cancer. There's imaging, there are different things you can do. There, you can take pieces of someone, we call biopsies, right? And we can analyze under a microscope, but you really can't do that for uh, neurosciences in general, right? Some of them you can, but the majority of the psychiatric conditions, you cannot do anything. So it takes a much longer and takes a lot more steps to understand uh, what's really going on inside someone's brain. And we, really don't understand exactly what it is. And, and GABA, as you just said, is, is something that we know as scientists for a very long time. It's a key molecule in the brain, right? It's a key neurotransmitter, right? So it lets all this impulse, the electric impulse that creates the way we talk, the way we think, everything else, all the functions in our brain operates. Uh, what we didn't know until recently uh, is that there are different ways GABA interacts with the brain that can help. We're still testing, as we're going to talk, I'm sure, in a, in a bit. Uh, it can help patients with other conditions than what was done uh, before. 
uh, and we're very hopeful and working very hard as well to prove that hypothesis that by modulating GABA, by changing the way it interacts, by adding uh, to uh, this network in the brain, they're going to be able to impact depression uh, in a meaningful way since the unmet need is so big. The key to what you were just saying for me is that you are going to adjust, if you will, the way it works inside the brain. It's just not adding more GABA. I mean, it's not if you're depressed, you just don't have low GABA, right? Right. So the the direct correlation between being depressed and the GABA levels is not clearly understood. There is some, some variability uh, that exists there. You can notice in different phase of life, in different conditions, uh, but it's not a one-to-one relationship. It's not completely direct. Now, most recently, what, what we learned is there are different receptors, right? Different places where this GABA molecule uh, correlates with or binds with in the brain. And what seems to happen is that depending on where the binds and how they modulate the impulses in the brain, uh, you have different results. And that's what is so exciting, right? That now with all this revolution that's happening in neuroscience, you can explore more and more. There are better techniques, there are better ways of looking to it. And you can test different hypotheses like this one we are testing right now, which we're incredibly excited about. Okay, give us the hypothesis. So the hypothesis is that is GABA in different places in the brain, I was saying, right? One of them is in the synapses that are receptors there. Uh, so in the junction, right, where's the all, all this neuron transmission happens. And some of them are outside. You have synapses. Yes. Everybody knows that. Right. And the GABA, some of it's inside the synapse. Correct. And some of it's outside. Correct. There, there. Okay, I'm with you. There are receptors in both places, right? Uh, there was not a lot of exploration throughout the years in terms of drugs that could target both of them. So when we think about uh, GABA modulation, right? That is this inside the synapses and outside of the synapses, as we we're talking about. Uh, one drug that uh, we all uh, took at least once, or 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 sometimes socially uh, regularly, is alcohol. And it binds to both the insides and the outside of the synapses. Uh, and we know what happens, right? You take alcohol, you feel at ease first, and then progressively you feel more sleepy, and then eventually uh, you're, you're out. Uh, another class of drug that's been very useful for both anxiety, since this mechanism is linked to anxiety as well, and sedation, when you really want to put someone to sleep, are the benzodiazepines. Uh, so benzodiazepines are, are commonly used. They're very useful for, for patients with many conditions, specifically with anxiety, and they bind specifically in the synaptic receptor, in the one that sits in the synapses. What we know about benzodiazepines as well is that they are not antidepressants, right? They don't, don't work for depression. They, they work really well for anxiety. They work really well for sedation, but they don't work for, for depression. So the hypothesis here is that by having a little bit of the synaptic, a lot of the extra synaptic, uh, so the ones that are outside of the synapses, you'd be able to reduce the anxiety because it's necessary, but also impacts the core of the depression, uh, the way patients feel with depression. So that's the idea uh, that we are moving forward and testing in the clinic right now. 
Now, what have you formulated here to test? Is it a, is it a biologic? Is it a pill? Is it an injection? What, what have you formulated here? Yeah, our investigational drug, right? So it's under research. So we call investigational drug. It's called Prax114. Uh, it's a pill. It's a tablet. Uh, the idea here is because, as I mentioned, there is this part that is on the synapses, right? It's inside the synapses that you feel at ease when you take. And because insomnia is such an important characteristic of depression, and sleeping is so important, as we all know, right? It's like having a good night of sleep, feeling awake the next day, you feel better. So we intend to give this drug right before bedtime. So we take once a day right before bedtime during the clinical trials. That's how it's being taken. And the expectations that throughout the day uh, you feel good and you sleep a good night of sleep as well. So you get the sleepy effect first at the time you're going to sleep. That's right. And then that's sort of because that's the, that's the one you're hitting lightly. And then it's the external one that you're going to be hitting throughout the next 24 hours. Very interesting. Now, you're in this uh, phase two, three. You're pretty far along the, the line here um, in uh, developing, testing this drug in, in clinical trials. And um, who are you testing? How severe is the depression? How light is it? And, and tell us about the trial itself. Yeah, we just started uh, this study here in the United States. Uh, as you mentioned, is a phase two, three. Uh, so we are studying inpatients, is what we call double-blinded double uh, studies. So uh, half of the patients receive the drug, the other half receive a sugar pill or placebo. Uh, so they don't know, no one knows uh, during the conduct of the trial is taking. It's about 200 patients in general, and they have to have moderate to severe depression. So the idea here is that there are sufficient depression to really uh, impact their life, the way they're, they're operating, the way they're going about life. And, and again, our hope here is that we're going to be able to help as many patients as we possibly can to, to go back and, and have a better life, at least uh, dealing with their depression. Entering this trial, aren't they already on antidepressants or no? Yeah, so this trial specifically, we are testing for patients that have a history of depression, but they are not on a current antidepressants in the episodes, right? So during that manifestation. Now we have another one coming up in the next couple of months for patients that have failed a current antidepressant, but are still taking it as a, a background, uh, what we call adjunctive treatments. It's important to have an experience with both uh, so we understand how to help the most uh, amount of individuals as possible. So Prax114 may in fact have uh, some activity and be good on its own, or it may be an additive to what we have today. That's correct. Uh, I think all we know about uh, treatments is that there's not such a thing as a silver bullet, right? There's no magic uh, treatments for anything. Uh, we're adding to the, the possibility here on how physicians can interact with their patients, can help them feel better. And the more we explore how these treatments can help on top of what is currently available, on top of what is going to be available in the future, we don't want to stop here. Like our 
as a company, we care deeply about the patients and we want to make sure that if there is other things that are helping these patients, they're also available. They also understand how to use them. So we're trying to, to study in a broad way so the most amount of individuals can benefit from it. Well, you're not only giving placebo to some of the patients. Uh, all of the patients are hoping to get a positive effect, you're going to get what we call a high placebo response. How do you measure the re what's coming in in terms of has it made an effect? And how do you know you're not getting that human wishful thinking high placebo response? One thing that is interesting, or a number of things, uh, may I say, that are interesting here is the drug does something and you want to make sure you show that. But then the way we conduct these investigations, right, these trials, as we call them, investigations, uh, are incredibly important as well. So what is the different part in the drug here? It's acting very fast. Uh, and uh, because we have 28 days of observation, but we expect the drug to, to act within the first two weeks uh, here, we're going to see that effects maximizing, we expect, during that period of time. And that normally does not happen uh, with placebo, right? Well, the expectation the person has is normally not like that. Our primary measure in the end of the study is not on the same day, and that allows as well for reduction. But quite importantly as well, I would say just like everything else uh, that we do, the way we conduct the quality of the study is important. And with both trials, when will we finally see some results from them? Yeah. So the, the results from both of them are expected early next year. Uh, so we are running that in parallel. Uh, as I mentioned, one of them started, the other is about to start, but we do expect to have results about the same time. So uh, it's too long for patients waiting, but it's uh, too short for society at large. So we're hoping to get there uh, pretty quickly. You know, we talked about a lot of science in this interview. You know, we <laughs> talked about the GABA and the theory and, you know, all the measures now we can take neuroscientifically. There's a lot going on. Does all the work that you're doing there, does it have potential applicability in, in other conditions? Oh, absolutely. And not only with the GABA mechanism, as we discussed today, we believe there's several other applications uh, since GABA is so important for the physiology, for the way the brain works. Uh, but the way this program started at Praxis was linking back to other conditions and linking back to genetics. And that's the way we look into developed drugs. Like we look into what is important, what is all these imbalances in the brain? And then we get that, we thread the needle back to, okay, how can I help? How can we modulate it? Uh, and we have a number of other programs. We are solely focused on the brain as a company. We want to make a real impact on these patients uh, with brain conditions, with CNS conditions. And, and we have a number of approaches and we're excited and, and very like hopeful as well. Hope is an important component on this. It's, I always say hope's not a strategy as I borrow that phrase from someone else. Uh, but it's it's an important component of everything we do uh, since the time is ticking for all those patients with brain disease, and we want to really help all of them. You mentioned CNS, that'd be central nervous system. What kind of diseases are those? Yeah, that, that is a number of diseases, like uh, many, many diseases on CNS, but the ones we are targeting right now 
uh, are basically in, in three major groups. One is psychiatry, that we just talked a little bit, depression, and there are others more to come. Other are movement disorders. And, and movement disorders are, are things that we heard and we've seen before, had family uh, members, for example, Parkinson's disease. We're primarily targeting right now a condition called essential tremor. Uh, it's the most prevalence. Uh, so the most uh, amount of people in the United States uh, living with a movement disorder is incredibly debilitating. And we're quite hopeful as well that we're going to be making a meaningful impact there. And then we have a number of rare diseases in our uh, portfolio, in our efforts. And rare diseases are where the populations are much smaller, right? So it tends to be harder to understand the disease itself and less incentives for companies to develop treatments for them. We're very committed to all of it. And we have the, actually the largest number of programs as a company, although not so advanced as PREX114, as we discussed, to treat rare disease and more to come. Uh, we're uh, we're going to continue. Uh, we're not going to stop there. Uh, hopefully, we're going to get as many of those drugs in patients' hands and, and help them continue to help many more uh, in the future. Well, Marcio, thank you so much. I hope you'll come back and see us again. I, I would love to. This was wonderful. Thank you so much, Laura. Marcio Sousa is the president and CEO of Praxis Precision Medicines. More information is available on the web at praxismedicines.com. That's Praxis, P-R-A-X-I-S, praxismedicines.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.